0: Welcome to the Embedded Church Podcast, where we share stories about reweaving the connections between place, the built environment, and the mission of God.
1: Season four of the Embedded Church Podcast is produced in partnership with the Ormond Center at Duke Divinity School. The mission of Ormond Center is to foster the imagination, will, and ability of congregations and communities to be agents of thriving.
0: I'm Eric Jacobson.
1: And I'm Sarah Joy Propay, and we'll be your hosts on today's episode of the Embedded Church Podcast. Hey, Sarah Joy. Hey, Eric. How's it going?
0: It's going good. So what if I told you that place is a dirty word?
1: Eric, I feel like this is deja vu or Groundhog Day all over again. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe it's just COVID and the year that it's been. But I'm pretty sure you made this case last episode when it came to Shalom. Shalom being a dirty word. Yeah, I don't know. How is place a dirty word? Do I even want to go there with you? I don't All know. All right. Well, let me try to make my
0: case by telling you a story. Okay. So I'm at a church in Tacoma, and we have a lot of folks at this church from other places. One couple is from Texas. Woohoo. As you know, Texans are a little peculiar, especially about their place. Yeah.
1: Awesome. If that's what you mean by peculiar. Yeah. <laughs> anyway,
0: this couple was expecting a baby. And uh, the husband in this scenario was particularly proud of the place they were from, namely Texas. And so he had brought a Ziploc bag filled with Texas soil (laughs) that he was planning to put under the hospital bed where his wife would deliver their baby so that he could say his child was born on Texas (laughs) soil. And That is awesome. (laughs) Only leave it to a Texan to do that. So here's my case. This guy was so committed to his place that he needed to move some dirt from that place in order to make sure his child was connected to that place. So dirt, place, they're all super connected.
1: Okay, okay. I can see some connections there. I just have to say, I do love the smell of Texas dirt. Yeah. You know when the dirt's from Texas, it smells a certain (laughs) certain way.
0: (laughs) I'm going to regret I used that example, but...
1: There you go. You'll never live it down. So I could see that. Let's bring this idea back to this analogy that we described in episode one. So Wendell Berry has this bucket, right? And we use that to talk about shalom initially because this bucket is collecting all of this debris, these natural pieces of the local environment into this bucket. And it's creating dirt, creating shalom, right? Yep, yep. So now we're going to expand that a little bit more because Shalom is going to look different with different places is what you're saying. So like Barry's bucket, probably going to have some like hickory and different things like that. Your bucket in Tacoma, maybe some pine needles here in St. Paul. We're going to have probably some maple trees. I don't know. I don't know my trees super well in St. Paul, to be honest.
0: (laughs) Different dirt in Kentucky, different dirt in St. Paul, different dirt in Tacoma, all that dirt is going to grow things in a different way. Different things are going to grow better in those three different locations because of the dirt. And that's where where place comes in, right? There's different things that make Tacoma special, different things that make St. Paul special, different things that make Kentucky special. And when we describe Shalom as rightness of relationship, rightness of all sorts of things, that's just going to look different in our different places.
1: Yeah. So place breeds a particular type of dirt
0: yeah exactly so place is a dirty word so i think it would be sort of interesting on that cue for us to maybe talk a little bit about what makes our places delightful and shalom like in our particular locations and maybe
1: fleshes out a little bit right and why place is even so important for understanding how we work to make shalom yeah okay I'll give it to you, Eric, I guess I'll give it to you, particularly really just because you told a story about a Texan, which was (laughs) awesome. That
0: was intentional. Yes.
1: (laughs) All right, let's go with it. Hey, Eric, I've gotten to know you a bit over these past few years, and I'm realizing that I don't actually know how many churches you have served as a pastor.
0: I have served all of two churches as a pastor.
1: Where were they located?
0: So my first call was in Missoula, Montana, one of the greatest places in the world. And my second call, Tacoma, Washington, also one of the greatest places in the world.
1: All right. Well, I haven't been to Missoula. Actually, I've never even been to Tacoma, Seattle oh, area. Yeah. But missing. They, both... Missing out. <laughs> they both look beautiful from what I've seen. Absolutely. So... How did you decide whether or not you were called to a particular church?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. So pastors, um, depending on the tradition, you can kind of interview for jobs. Whenever I had an interview, at some point during the interview, I would always ask the church to, to answer, uh, what would I run into within a five-minute walk of the front door of the church? What types of businesses or would there be any businesses? What variety of building types and all that?
1: Which that seems like a pretty unusual question to come from a pastor. So tell us a bit more. Why were you asking that?
0: Absolutely. I'm really after a couple of things with that question. One is I truly want to know what the neighborhood's like. And I'm particularly interested in like a mixed-use neighborhood and an, an embedded church, a church that's like right there, not surrounded by a big parking lot, but right there in the middle. That's the kind of church that I tend to be drawn to. But secondly, you know, how readily they can answer the question tells me, how tuned they are into the particular uh, location that their church is, the geography around the church, if they're really aware of it, or if they're connected with their neighborhood where they live, but they aren't really connected too much with the neighborhood of the church. I think in a way, what I'm looking for is the place, the sense of place that they have uh, for the neighborhood. Place is, uh, is, is our topic today. So that's kind of why I'm thinking about that. But I thought place is one of those words that we use all the time, but maybe we don't Actually, know what it means, or, or if we're asked to define it, we would have a hard time, and it's often confused with other notions like space. So I was wondering, Sarah Joy, if you wouldn't mind taking a crack at explaining to our listeners what place means. How is it different from space?
1: Yeah, definitely. This is one of my favorite things to talk about because so often we haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it, but there are differences between these two words. So space is usually something that I would say is empty or generic. I also talk about it being limitless or not having much in terms of boundaries. So you can think of that in terms of like outer space or virtual space, the World Wide Web, all of that. But place is something that is much smaller or defined. What is really important to think about with place is a lot of times it develops around shared stories or cultural meanings. An example that a lot of people give and I often share is a baseball field. Mm So baseball field, when you don't have bases or stands or fans, it's really just an empty field. But as soon as you draw those baselines and you start a game and you have rules and kind of a cultural understanding of this American pastime of baseball, it takes on suddenly a whole new meaning. And so you get some of these like iconic places like Wrigley Field. That's one way to think about the difference between space and place. Yeah. And
0: I was going to say, your Wrigley Field, I think that's a beautiful picture of place and it. I think it reflects really well how place holds onto memories. And I can imagine somebody who's a huge baseball fan showing up to Wrigley Field or taking their kids back to Wrigley Field and recounting like experiences and memories would be a really powerful kind of thing. Those memories are anchored there in Mm -hmm. some cool ways.
1: Mm -hmm. Definitely. I think that's really important to understand the difference between space and place, because I do think that there's a relationship to what we believe as Christians and how God sets up place in the Bible. And I'd be curious to hear from you, Eric, as a pastor, what is the importance of place in the Bible that you really draw on? I
0: think it's super important to the Bible. In fact, I think a case could be made that it's like a central theme that runs throughout the whole scripture if you're paying attention to it. So one way into that conversation is to think about Jesus's promise that he's going to prepare a place for us our eternal existence is going to be in this place, this good environment where we have uh, communion with God and with each other. And, and that's this evocative image. But if if you kind of wind back the recording from, from where he said that, you think about God's creation, creates humans and places them in a garden, places them in a particular place, which is this really Shalom filled kind of
1: place where we can have communion with God and with each other. And the garden had very specific boundaries too, which is a fascinating thing to think about. Yeah. Not this limitless thing. And then, the
0: consequence of our disobedience, the curse was getting kicked out of that place, right? So displacement is a curse. And then when you think about uh, God's plan to redeem creation, redeem humanity, it starts with a promise to Abraham. And it's yeah. about, you'd be the father of the great nations. I'll bless you. But also it involves place. There'll be a land. There'll be a place where I'll take you to. And this right. will be this place where we can have communion together. And again, when the Israelites are disobedient, the punishment is displacement. They get exiled. So it kind of goes back and forth and back and forth, leading up to the coming of the Messiah and Jesus promises he's bringing us to a place and it all kind of culminates in the book of Revelation where that place gets revealed as the new heaven and the new earth and and the city of Jerusalem coming down. We find redemption, the end of the story is all in the context of place. So I, I see just shot through from the very beginning to the end, this powerful concept of our redemption is wrapped up in place.
1: Yeah, that's really true. Can you talk about the goodness of place and the limitations of place? And is there space for space to be good? <laughs> <laughs> right, absolutely. So,
0: yeah, absolutely. And there's kind of two ways that that needs to be answered, I think, to get a full picture from the Bible. One is um, having to do with just the realities of human existence um, and in the goodness of our creation. One has to do with the, the problem of sin. And both of those w- would speak to um, how space is good and how place isn't always good. So, starting with the first, I would say space in the Bible isn't always a bad thing. In fact, another theme that comes up a lot in the Bible is like the wilderness, like the yeah. the people of God go out in the wilderness, and that's a that can be a really formative time. That's where they really commune with God, and a lot of good things can happen in space. It doesn't seem like it's like a location that you're supposed to stay in forever, <laughs> but it's an important like growing time. I think that has a kind of analog in our lives. Like we, we really value place. Like we like our homes. We like the relationships that are really important to us. And, but sometimes place becomes too crowded. And so we talk about, oh, I need to just get some space right now. I need to go on retreat. I need to, and w- what we're saying when we say those things is we need to, to open up some space to, to breathe a bit, to, to, to get some perspective, to learn some new things. And so I think.
1: Yeah. Space, you even have Jesus leaving the crowds and exactly. going off on his own yeah. into just yeah. space to yeah. meditate so, and pray.
0: So, so space has really um, got a, a valuable uh, 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 role to play. And let's go to the other one. The place is good. That's where redemption happens. But place can also be kind of bad because of our sin. So it's a realm of creation that's infected with sin like, like anything else. And so, as much as we like the idea of place, and we have a lot of positive memories, especially marginalized populations, I think when they hear the word place, sometimes they hear uh, oppression. Like, oh, right. you need to stay in your place. We're going to keep you in your place. You don't belong mm-hmm. in this place because you don't look like us. And so, there's some really horrible, you know, racism and any kind of oppressive power structures. Is going to use place as a way to press people down and keep them excluded. Yeah, and so
1: that's and I I've talked a, so many times about how place can be associated with shame so easily, yeah. and thinking about even the ways that we, as a society, say, you know, oh, you grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, and how much shame can be associated with that.
0: Yeah, so I I tend to think of um, that's where the gospel needs to be a healing influence. Your place itself is good in terms of concept; it's fallen, and so sometimes. You know, just as salvation happens in place, sometimes Jesus needs to redeem the oppressions of place. And I think that conversation with the Samaritan woman that Jesus had at the woman at the well was really all about that. She's a Samaritan woman. She was, you know, excluded from Jerusalem. She couldn't worship there. And so she thought she was excluded from God. And Jesus gave her a very liberating word, which is you can worship God in spirit and truth. It's not limited to place in that oppressive sense. And so he's really freeing her up from the oppression of place. But then she too will be part of those who are promised that he's going to prepare a place of inclusion for her as the rest mm-hmm. of us you know, are included. I think that really shows both sides of the coin there. So let's get into placelessness because I think that's something that's not really biblical because I think it's part of our modern society in a lot of ways. But yeah. I think it's a significant problem that stares us right in the face all the time. So can you tell our listeners a little bit or explain placelessness to them?
1: Yeah, so placelessness, neither place nor space. And I would almost say it's rootless. And so in a forgotten history almost. So I think about even the Israelites when they're in the wilderness and in this space, they're still being called to set up cairns, to set up markers to really create a story there. And so it's not a placelessness for them. They're making place as they go about their wanderings in the wilderness placelessness tends to be void of local culture. It tends to be void of story. So you think about anywhere America, I think that's how (laughs) James Howard Kunzler talks about it, right? Yeah. The McDonald's sign where you look at that and you don't know where you are. You can't locate yourself. Our modern culture, like you said, has created this uh, placelessness because it's really undermined any loyalty that we have to place or love of place because we've, become such advocates for independence and there's such a desire to accrue wealth and to do whatever it takes. And so I think we've really devalued place. And then unfortunately, too, we've designed places that are placeless in many ways, like I said, anywhere in America with your chain stores, your strip malls. And so that only feeds into that devaluing of place as well, because... It's hard to value places that look like anywhere in America because you don't have those emotional ties or those attachments or those memories associated with them as strongly as you do the local coffee shop or grandma's house. But unfortunately, too, with this placelessness, I think what is so bad about it, honestly, is the fact that it creates this disorientation. Mm -hmm. And you touched on this earlier when you're talking about being in exile from the garden and just the sin, you know, brought about this disorientation. And I think what's so key in that Genesis passage is that the first question that God asks of mankind is, where are you? Right. And it's a question of orientation. and. Whether or not they're aware of it at that moment, they can't place themselves because they have entered into exile. Now we are seeing the repercussions of that through today, right? As yeah. we are all looking for a return to home.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting.
1: As we've talked about the importance of place and how it shows up in the Bible. Why do you think that pastors should care about place as they are seeking to understand the Bible and lead others on that path?
0: The theme verse for this season has been Jeremiah 29, 7, seek the welfare of the city or place. I've kind of replaced that word because I don't think it only applies to an urban environment to seek the welfare of the place to which you've been called. And I think that that really thinking about the specificity of the location where your church is or where your population is and place is really important there. Like, what are people proud of in this place? What's unique to only this place? And um, the more we know that, I think the better handle we'll have on how to bless the people that live there and work there and and interact with that place. And um, the more we'll be able to participate as one of them, uh, a sense of belonging. I think it's really important for pastors to ask place-specific questions I think it's really easy for pastors to get lost in sort of abstractions about how do we communicate the gospel to humanity? How do we bless humanity in general? But those questions become much more interesting and much more productive, I think, if, if they're place-specific. What does the good news sound like to the people who live here in this place? Yeah. I know you work with pastors a lot. I am a pastor, but I'm I kind of have only my own story to kind of reference. But you work with tons of pastors and try to help them to tune into the neighborhood and the place what are some tricks that you've learned for helping pastors and congregations get tuned into the place where their churches are located
1: Yeah we'll see this isn't any sort of magical answer it's always very simple but i say begin with walking and one of the ways that i encourage churches to think about challenging their congregation to do this as well is even considering a walk to church challenge yeah. if they have congregants who live close enough encourage them to do that and take yeah. notes along the way and pay attention to what you see and how you experience the sidewalks and the smells. Or if you have a church where most people drive in, encourage them to park a couple blocks away on a couple of Sundays and walk that distance into the church. And again, take notes on what they see and they experience. So I think making yourself available in public space is really important to really yep. start to understand your place. Take the bus to church uh, that gives you a good sense of mobility in your neighborhood and whether or not places are truly accessible and what that's like um, as somebody without a car would have to experience, you know, potentially getting to work or getting to the grocery stores um, sitting outside in the front. I mean, and hold your coffee hours out on the front lawn. So many times people are like huddled around stinky basements <laughs> <laughs> yes. and I don't understand that so as much as possible put things outside um I'll also say go to neighborhood association meetings and listen and hear what are the concerns that are being raised and just really make yourself available volunteer at the neighborhood association fairs and different events throughout the year those are always great ways to just meet people and get to know the community and understand it better
0: oh, I love it those are great ideas what about um you know another Kind of ongoing theme with our podcast has been the built environment. How does the built environment intersect with this notion of place?
1: Well, that's a very good question and I probably will have a pretty extensive answer. So you ready for this? I'm ready. Bring it on. (laughs) There's so much connection because one of our greatest callings and gifts really comes from being made in the image of God. And as you mentioned earlier, God's first act was to create a place. Um, to create a habitat for humankind and animals. He emplaced humanity. And so an extension of our calling is to develop places that proactively create shalom or flourishing in the economic, physical and spiritual well-being of our neighborhoods. And this comes through so many things that we discussed on the first episode which takes shape through our built environment. And that's things like access to affordable housing and jobs and healthy foods and so many of these things that are foundational needs that we have as human beings that are gifts that God has given us that we need these things. And we come together in community to create places that really enable these needs to be met and enable us to flourish as human beings. And so I think that we need to design our places, understanding that those are really important parts of who we are and as beings created in the image of God. And we need to be aware of not designing places that rob us of those connections and that yeah. sever that flourishing and sever those relationships of being in creation with one another.
0: I wonder if we even thought about beyond just the creation of new places, but like supporting existing places like... Shopping local, for instance, right um, that's going to, over time, can have an impact on the viability of those businesses which occupy the the local... I mean, those things don't just sort of exist uh, in perpetuity. They need support. Going to local store is going to allow that local store to hopefully survive and thrive. Yeah. It's going to allow me to continue to cultivate relationships with neighbors that go to that store and the store owner. And you know, that's a place positive kind of move to make if you can afford it.
1: I have a friend who always says, you vote with your dollars. Yeah. And I think that's really true. And I think it's a hard thing because buying locally does usually cost more. And so when I encourage people to do that, I do that with the recognition of the limitations that that has as well. Mm -hmm. But that's part of this like holistic understanding of shalom too of what does it mean to be good stewards of our finances and to prioritize some of these local investments over other things, and it might mean buying less of one thing um, than we normally would. But I think that's part of the call as Christians to be really thinking holistically about our lifestyles and all the implications of the connections to the community and the way that the way we live either fosters better connections and healthier connections for us and for the local community or not. Yeah. and. I mean, you know, that's, involved in that
0: a lot of a lot of christians you know want to have an influence on culture but it feels like such a massive undertaking you know mm-hmm. how do we change legislation but i think when you bring your scope down to the local level and just how you spend your money and those kinds of things you realize you are shaping the local culture and it's much right. easier to shape the local culture so let's talk about this bucket image that uh, Wendell Berry I know you always like to talk about Wendell Berry whenever we can I do um, you've got a picture of him you know uh, no, she doesn't actually but... <laughs> I don't
1: have a picture of him That <laughs> a, signed,
0: a signed picture <laughs> glossy, glossy actually though picture. I do
1: have a letter a handwritten letter from him there you go and
0: so let's think about this bucket imagery you know this idea that soil is, is the shalom kind of uh, of a community is is analogous to good soil where good things can grow how can we connect the place conversation to soil
1: yeah, so first I think you should reimagine for our listeners what you mean when you talk about the bucket analogy. Yeah. So can you explain that? Sure, yeah. In case so they missed episode one.
0: Absolutely, so it's fairly simple. It's Wendell Berry's idea that this bucket that's, that he sees on a walk that he takes pretty regularly near his home is the setting for what he calls one of the greatest miracles on earth. And that is the creation of soil, like all the leaves and animal droppings and all kinds of stuff from the environment gather in this bucket. And then over time, they decompose and they turn into soil. And topsoil is so valuable to the well-being of a community and things grow in it and it's hard to make. So he uses that as kind of this uh, analogy for we as humans uh, need to be contributing to the local soil, the local culture, uh, so that that community can be healthy and vibrant uh, in a similar way.
1: Okay. Love it. So... Thinking about that and the local soil then and thinking about how certain kinds of things grow better in particular soils. Yeah. So if pastors are going to be effective at planting seeds in their local soil, they need to understand the local soil and understand what makes sense to plant there. I'm a big gardener too. And so what I think about too is like when you're planting seeds, you also being aware of like the type of soil that you're working with. For example, with carrots, I grow carrots every season, but I know that I actually have three garden plots, let's yeah. be honest.
0: Yeah. She's <laughs> That's hardcore. like all I
1: do all summer. Yeah.
0: Wendell Berry, um, are you listening?
1: I know, right? Um, anyways... But I know that one plot tends to have more clay type soil yeah. and you can't really grow carrots very well in clay because clay gets really rock hard and carrots need that room to send down those roots and grow. And so if I plant my carrots there, I'm going to get short, stubby carrots. So understanding that local soil is really important to knowing what needs to be planted and what will produce well and be fruitful um, in your environment and in your place.
0: Awesome. This has been a great conversation so far. I'm excited to bring Chris Elisara from the Ormond Center into this conversation as well. And he's going to give his perspective on the importance of place, the local church, and how valuing place is part of seeking the shalom uh, to, to these places.
1: Here we are with Chris Elisara. He is also based out of the Ormond Center at Duke Divinity School. So excited to have Chris with us today. Welcome.
2: Woohoo. It's great to be here and talking about things that I love. And I know that you love too, because we've been friends for a while. Yeah. We talk about this when we get together and now we're doing it on this, on this podcast. So i um, really glad to be here and talking with you.
0: So, Chris, uh, I know we, we introduced you in the trailer, but for folks who didn't listen to the trailer, and maybe you could tell us just briefly a little about who you are and what work you do with the Ormond Center.
2: For the Ormond Center, I lead the studio for placemaking. Okay. And what that means is we're focusing on trying to help congregations and individuals in those congregations to be a congregation that loves the neighborhood love in it. all its fullness
0: Obviously, you've taken this position because place is important to you. Could you tell our listeners a little bit what place means to you personally? Why do you care about place so much?
2: You know, I think when I was listening to what you shared earlier about the way that God put us together, yeah, that really is what resonates with me most deeply, contributing to making that place the best it can be. Because that's the way that we live together, and our identity comes together, and it's and it's all shaped by by place. And you know that's the way that God made us. Absolutely. And when He put us in the put us in that garden, He made us to be embodied and to be in place. So, Chris, you work for the Orman Center, but you're dialing
0: in from a place. Tell us about where you are right now, what place you're in, and tell us a little bit how your personal story interacts with place.
2: Yeah, I am in the small town of Julian, up in the mountains of san diego so oh wow you know yeah you don't think about you know san diego southern california having these mountains but we're actually on the coastal crest of a mountain range that that's in mexico and goes on all the way up and we're here intentionally because we wanted to have a place mm. that we could have our family experience and grow up and that could really shape who they were because you know place shapes our identity
0: Okay. So your kids, your kids were born there and uh, that's all, that's mostly what they know of place, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. So they have been shaped by being in this little small town of Julian. And, you know, at the time we made the decision to come and live here because I started an environmental studies program for Christian university students. And we had a program in Belize and a program in New Zealand and we were running it, which meant that we were there. And then during the summers and, you know, the spring break, we were not there. We were back with our friends. And so over a couple of years, that just became old and weary. Like you've described, you know, um, not rooted in a place. Rootless. Exactly. Exactly. And so we said we wanted to be in a place that was small enough that when we actually left, people would know we had gone. (laughs) And they were looking for us to come back. That's awesome.
1: And if I remember correctly, your family does a fair amount of activities in that town. Is that correct? We kind of do. Yeah. We play music
2: together. We're in Mountain Town, right? Yeah. So fiddle playing, um, is something that we're doing here in Julian, um, because it's Mountain Town, mountain and mountain music kind of go together, right? And so there was a, um, a bluegrass festival here many years ago, but it kind of stopped. But more recently, gentlemen from, you know, down in Encinitas, Avery said, Hey, let's revive that. And so he started um, a fiddle contest here oh, wow. and he started a fiddle camp. But my son now started to play fiddle. He, oh, cool. he got on, started to play fiddle. So he's a fiddle player. And because he plays fiddle, now I play guitar. And because he was playing fiddle and we were hearing, you know, mandolin music, my other son plays mandolin. And so there's a whole thing that's happening up here in these mountain towns of Julian around American rookie music, playing fiddle.
0: That feels so Wendell Berry. I got to be honest with you, especially like (laughs) just that we've been really working this bucket imagery where the bucket is where local culture is made. It it collects all stuff from the region and then turns it into soil and life can grow out of that. And your picture of making music with your sons and with other folks in the regions. I love it. Let me take it in a little bit of a more somber turn because I do think you've picked up on something really important. And that is a lot of folks in our country and in the world experience a kind of rootlessness that is that is part and parcel of suburban life, automobile culture, even big city life to some extent. But what you've keyed in on is in the rural setting, you can have uh, roots go deeper. But and I'm just gonna ask you, because you live it and I don't, but do you also see in, in that kind of setting like the negative side of place where where people who aren't from around here aren't as welcome or People are kind of stuck in whatever reputation you have, the kind of parochialism, just not giving people the freedom to be different.
2: Yeah, I think that's, you know, one of the things that the gospel is important for understanding how we react to place, because like you say, the positive side is it can develop a a richness of community, a richness of culture, but the gospel always invites people in, the stranger in. Yeah. There's always this hospitality part. And so I think a church and a congregation should be participating in the story making of a particular place in the culture of a place, really helping to cultivate the arts and the other things that make that place unique and can only be unique because of, you know, its geography and its people. The church engages in that. Yeah. But it also is always hospitable Mm. to, to people, you know, pride of place can get in the way of, you know, excluding people. And it can also, there's other issues in that regard as well, in terms of, you know, overstepping the bounds of excluding people. Yeah, The gospel is not about that. The church is never about that. So I think we try to do both within our framework of understanding the mindset of, of Jesus in a place.
1: Thinking about that in terms of the hospitality that you just spoke of, so I'd be curious, too, if you have particular examples or things that you encourage churches to consider as they think about how to embody this hospitality.
2: I, I'll speak again from our experience here in Julian, and that is, I think a church needs to be engaged in placemaking by providing events, providing occasions for gatherings. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so we do community barbecues. And so we bring the community together. We also participate in events like small town, 4th of July parade. <laughs> yeah. Is a big deal, you know, but our church participates in that. And what's happening there is we're being good neighbors, but we're participating in that joint storytelling, mm-hmm. well, that joint story making, so then it can tell a story. <laughs> right. right. And the churches, I think, you know that kind of standoffish, miss out on the place-making, calling that they have by being standoffish. No, I would say churches need to be you know really engaged as much as they possibly can in making the the things that happen in a in a in a place, the activities, the events, cultivating the arts.
0: Chris, you got me thinking. I wonder if part of that hospitality would involve like translating, and interpreting. The language and the rhythms to newcomers or you know outsiders. Yeah. I, you, you mentioned that Fourth of July parade. Actually, in my town in Tacoma, we've got this funny tradition where they do neighborhood Fourth of July parades, where mm-hmm. literally neighbors just walk in the streets and they decorate their scooters and their bikes. But when we moved here, we moved here in July about thirteen years ago, and we didn't know about that tradition. It was early July. And one of our neighbors said, hey, we got this great thing we do on 4th of July and everybody's included. And, you know, tomorrow morning, you guys can actually be in a parade. And someone told us that, right? We didn't feel left out. I do think that's part of how we can um, help be hospitable with place because place can, you know, those rich traditions are the very things that make people feel left out if they don't understand them.
2: No, exactly. I think those things are what we love about a place. And I think what we're doing when we've been hospitable is that we're sharing the love so that others can love as well. Right. So how you make a strong place, I think is growing the love of a place. Right. So visitors come, new people come, that they get to love the place and contribute to making the city, the town, the neighborhood as well, because they have grasped our love, what we've done so far, and what can you do to add your love? To this place, and mm-hmm. it's going to be you know maybe a garden up front or it may be another kind of event, but right. you know we do this placemaking because our hearts have expanded right. in a particular type of way. and I think that type of way is actually God loves place. I learned this from um, another professor at Duke, Norman Wzberg, mm-hmm. in a conversation one time. He, he just said, "Why is there something not nothing?" Because there didn't have to be something. right? God, yeah. the Trinity was perfectly happy, but God created. Right. And so what we have is a material expression of God's love. This material expression of God's love is something that God has attention towards, loves deeply, and wants us to flourish in. And so God loves place.
0: That leads mm-hmm. me to, to jump in with a, could be totally off-scripts, Tangent, but Chris, your accent doesn't sound like what I would expect from Julian, California. Where did you learn to speak with that beautiful accent? How do the the locals there uh how does
2: how do they accept that? Well, let's put it this way. If we were exchanging a greeting in my homeland, I'd say, Hey, good day, mate. How you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I grew up in New Zealand. Okay. What part? And I grew up in West Auckland. But I was really shaped, you know, my identity in New Zealand. Yep. Also half um, Samoan. So, oh, right. you know, New Zealand is a Pacific nation, but it's also a Commonwealth country. So I'm yep. half Polynesian. And my mom is European, English, German, French stock. And so I am that quintessential New Zealander. Um, and I came to the United States and I yes. went to Eastern mm-hmm. University That's and I was amazing. 22. Yeah, And so I've got this funky accent, which is like New Zealand. Philadelphia, East Coast. <laughs>
0: I love it. I've always right. loved your accent. So that's so good. Yeah.
2: Cool.
0: <laughs> part of who you are.
1: One of the things that Chris, you talk with Eric and I quite a bit about is the built environment. Yes. And I would love to hear from you. Kind of the significance of the built environment and place and how those things intersect together and your biblical understanding of place and how that connects to the built environment of where we live.
2: Yeah, we do, don't we? We're kind of nerdy in that way. (laughs) Total nerds. (laughs) We're measuring sidewalks all the time. (laughs) Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Drives my kids nuts. But, you know, the built environment is something that I didn't Realized how important it was before my friend took off on a road trip along route 66 and was making a film about that and as he was driving through you know town after town that at one time was vibrant and essential to american commerce and culture as people were traveling the mother road they had all died and gone away Mm -hmm. and so they were derelict towns but why Because something happened in the built environment Mm. that changed all that. And that was interstate freeway. Yeah, Yeah. Just miles off the main street was interstate freeway. And so that intervention in the built environment changed American culture. And so that kind of clued me into just how impactful the built environment is. So I think as a Christian, going back to the biblical story and Going back to that garden story, and we have a responsibility, I think, to help our places be commensurate with the fullness of God's shalom. And that means we have to design well. We have to Mm -hmm. think through ways that places can be either good or bad and choose to make them the best places they can possibly be for people. I'll give a story about this. So there was a guy called Henry Turley, and he is a person who grew up in Memphis, and he took a a step of love towards his town to say, "Hey, what can I do to help make that downtown better mm. for the citizens?" And so he invested as a developer in downtown mm. Memphis, and he's responsible for bringing that town and city back in lots of different ways by his investment in buildings. But here's the real interesting thing. We did a film about him. It wasn't about downtown Memphis, but it was about a place called Harbor Town on Mud Island. Mm. So what he did was he developed a community there. And he put in, you know, housing so people could live there, made it walkable, mm. put in some commerce. It was a beautiful community on Mud Island. Now right across the river, actually connected by a bridge, is a community called Uptown. And Uptown is a lower socioeconomic community. And if you compare the two built environments, <laughs> they were like night and day, hmm. right? A lot of disinvestment uh, in, in uptown. But Henry said to himself, Hey, you know what I'm doing in Hubbard Town, The people in uptown deserve the same type of design, the same type of neighborhood. And so he basically, he said, I'm going to do it. And I think everybody deserves good design. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't depend upon who you are, how wealthy you are, what your skin color is, because the built environment and if that's commensurate or, you know, squares up with the best way that um a design can be for community. That's what we should be doing. And churches can contribute to that.
0: Yeah. So built environment as a way of loving your neighbor, as contributing to shalom, great example. So Chris, if I could ask you a follow-up question to that, you know, the old saw that sometimes gets thrown around in Christian circles, the church is not the building, it's the people. We sort of create this dichotomy between place and people. And so since we're on the subject of place, do you think someone has to choose between loving
2: the people or loving the place? How do you think about that? We can't separate the two. Okay. To love people means you have to love the place as well. And you need to contribute to making that place the best it can be. Yeah. That means for a church to actually have eyes on the place, to see the place and its strengths and its weaknesses. And where there is, you know, weaknesses or gaps in that place. I think the church should start to contribute to solving those gaps or solving those problems. So that could be contributing housing. There is things that we can do as a church to love people through loving place. You know that you're loved by your community when your community is investing in the built environment and is investing in the community and the place that you're living in. And my kids know that they're loved because of the intentional way that we have. Save some places, for example, in Julian. We saved a natural place so that they could experience it. We actually saved a park downtown that was actually going away. (laughs) We saved that place because it was the only public park. If that park wasn't there, the kids in our community would not feel as loved as if that park had gone.
1: I think it brings dignity to people too as you love a place and you keep up a place and you maintain a place you're also conveying to people that you are worthy of a place <laughs> that is good.
2: You know there's there are some designers and landscape architects that understand this. And so when they design a public space what they're trying to do is they're trying to make the the public space as beautiful as it possibly can be and designed in such a way that it uplifts your spirit in that public space Mm. because you know that space can give you dignity yeah Mm -hmm. and anybody can be in that public space yeah that's the responsibility of a public designer
1: and I think it's a good challenge to churches too to think about their property as public space in many ways. And what are ways that they can creatively invite public to enjoy their property in a similar way?
0: I got to jump in though cuz Chris you were talking about Memphis and you said we also made a film in Memphis and then I was like also made a film I bet our listeners don't even know that you make films. So
1: Chris is a filmmaker on the Yeah, we didn't
2: even mention that. (laughs) Can you just tell us real briefly what films you make and why? You know, we we specialize in making films about cities, towns, and places. The company is First and Main Films, and we also do a film festival. And the film festival is called um, the Better Cities Film Festival. So what we try to do in our own films and in the film festival is really... Tell stories and collect stories that can inspire people to, to make great places.
0: Yeah, Telling stories is exactly what Wendell Berry says. Is, that's his analog for the bucket is when we gather and tell stories, we're, we're making local culture, we're making soil. Man, you're getting Wendell Berry seal of excellence right now. Between <laughs> between the music on the porch. Eric
1: is the determiner the of that. Well,
0: <laughs> yes. And, and Sarah Joy secretly <laughs> wants to marry uh, Wendell Berry, but that's true. Uh,
2: another story. That's another story. Yeah. Can I say something about this a little bit too as well? Yeah, that, yeah. You know, the story stuff. We say a motto is a story can change a city. Yeah. And how does it do that? I mean, there's some empirical work that's been done that a healthy adult, resilient adult is resilient and healthy in part because they have been told in their family over and over and over again, family stories. So the stories that people are told as young kids over and over and over again, that has an impact on an individual's identity, their mental health, their mental well-being, their spiritual well-being, and they become resilient adults. And James and Barbara Fellows did a recent book, right? Town. I just bought that book. I just got, got it. Yeah, you'll love it. And they went all around the country, 100,000 miles, right? And they're asking questions. What makes a town resilient that is kind of full on a hot times but can is bouncing back? And they say one of the important things in the top 10 is that town has a civic story. Mm-hmm. And that town is working the civic story. They know where they came from and they don't try to sugarcoat that story in the past. And they're in a the moment right now that they're thinking through and working their story and they got a future path of a story they want to create. But the citizens in those towns are a part of the civic story. Hmm. I think it's true both at an individual level, but also in terms of the civic story for towns, communities, neighborhoods, and congregations participating in shaping the civic story for the individuals and citizens and i think that's something we should be doing i love it
0: yeah that's,
1: awesome. that's beautiful i was curious because you had made mention that you have some stories with your own family i don't know if you want to share any of those
2: yeah there's a story about the impact of place and how place shapes our identity you know, we live in Julian, as I mentioned, we're in the mountains, but we we look at a mountain in particular called Vulcan Mountain. And Vulcan Mountain is so present in our town. Everybody sees it. And um, my son, being part New Zealander, he is connecting both his American identity and his New Zealand identity. And in New Zealand, the way that the Maori people in New Zealand talk about themselves and talk about their entity is connect, always connected to place. So when you introduce yourself, just as in New Zealand, a Māori person, um, you always will start with, um, a geographical feature and they, mm-hmm. and they say, I am so and such and such and such is my mountain. And so coming back to Julian, right? Here's my son understanding and learning about this and, uh, seeing Vulcan Mountain. It's become a place that he loves. Mm. And his identity is actually inseparable from this mountain. He just loves it, right? Mm. And so now he identifies himself as Ethan and Vulcan is my mountain. Huh. That's awesome. And he is a part of the story that is here. You can't separate his identity from Julian. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. I love that. It. Is that is awesome. me chills.
1: Thank you for sharing that story with us. Can I say one more thing? Yeah, please do. I
2: don't want the listeners to come away thinking they have to live in a small town like Julian to love a place. That's what we do. That's how we've done it. But you don't have to leave and go to a small town. Yeah. Um. Because if you think of a city, what's a city? A city is actually an aggregation of small towns. And so the thing that we have here in Julian, you can have in a city. You can have anywhere, because a real well-designed city. It's basically, uh, you know, an aggregation of small towns with a heart and the core at the beginning you know, and, and a main street, and then all the other stuff around. It. And and so right. you can love your neighborhood, your five-minute walk, your ten-minute walk in any place, right? If give it that attention, definitely. Yeah. And you give it that love.
1: Yeah. I think that's so key. Give it that attention. Know what's there.
0: I love it. Awesome.
1: Awesome.
2: Hi folks, this is Chris Alassara again, sharing the Almond Coda. I was especially happy when we talked in this episode about the powerful relationship between hospitality and place, because that's what I've been chewing on recently after hosting a group of people on the property here in Julian. And as we prepared to host our guests, several things hit home. Hospitality is thoughtfully and intentionally sharing your love of a place with your guests so they too can experience and enjoy it as you do. Through your hospitality, your guest gets to love your garden, or your farmer's market, or your favorite coffee shop, the view from your porch, or some musicians in your daily life. But this all supposes that you're well acquainted and deeply love the particularities of where you live. And that's the point that hit me as we prepared for our guests. As we got ready for their arrival, we started to see our place with new eyes. We appreciated the obvious, beautiful, and good things. But we also saw what was not so good and needed our attention to bring up to speed. What needed maintenance and repair. And we set about repairing, painting, and improving. To be as hospitable as we possibly could, we got deeper and deeper into the particularities of our place. We showed off and enjoyed the good, and we repaired the bad. And when the day arrived, everyone really loved dwelling with our community and enjoying our place. So my leaving thought is this. If you really want to experience and understand what the heart and soul of what place is, what place means, how vital place is to our identity, and why we as Christians, pastors, and congregations should pay special attention to place, focus on sharpening your hospitality game. Because hospitality is a great teacher about place. In fact, try this thought experiment out. If you knew Jesus was coming to be a guest in your church, in your neighborhood, your town, or in your home, what would you introduce him to? What would you want him to experience at your church as a place? What would you want him to experience in your neighborhood? Thinking through these details will drive you to learn a ton about place, and your place in particular. Maybe it will lead to some placemaking ideas and projects with your neighbors. That's it for now. Thanks for listening.
1: Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Embedded Church Podcast. Be sure to check out the episode show notes for links to resources and other helpful information related to this episode. If you'd like to connect with us to share comments or ideas about the work we're doing, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at info at embeddedchurch.com or leave a voice message on our feedback line by dialing 760-527-3260. Follow us on Instagram at podcast or visit our website www.embeddedchurch.com. Finally, thank you to our Season 4 partners at Ormond Center and to all of our faithful listeners and supporters who have helped us make it to Season 4. We are honored and encouraged. Until next time, be well.